if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land, we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. The price for this freedom at times has been high, but we have never been unwilling to pay that price. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. Each one of those markers is a monument to the kind of hero I spoke of earlier. Their lives ended in places called Bellow Wood, the Argonne, Omaha Beach, Salerno, and halfway around the world on Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Porkchop Hill, the Chosin Reservoir, and in a hundred rice paddies and jungles of a place called Vietnam. Under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Treptow, who left his job in a small town barber shop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We're told that on his body was found a diary. On the flyleaf, under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. We must realize that no arsenal or no weapon in the arsenals of the world is so formidable as the will and moral courage of free men and women. It is a weapon our adversaries in today's world do not have. It is a weapon that we as Americans do have. Let that be understood by those who practice terrorism and prey upon their neighbors. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Back to the bin. All right, we ready to jump into this? Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> 
right. It's, it makes you feel like Bill is here. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. Happy Independence Day. This is our big Independence Day special. And my name is Scott Gardner. Joining me, as always, is my very good friend, Paul Spataro. Hello, and happy Independence Day week. Happy Independence Day to you. Now, the doctor... We are independent of the doctor so right now. so wanted to be here. <laughs> we are independent of the doctor tonight. In his stead, we have a blast from the past. Please welcome back. It's always a pleasure to have him. Welcome back to this show, my old co-host, my old cohort, and one of my very bestest pals, Mr. Michael Bailey. This is the first year where I'm working at a place where we're going to be closed on Independence Day, so I'm kind of excited about that. Yeah, (laughs) that would be exciting. Cooking some burgers on the grill, Uh, and I will say that is grilling and not barbecue, lest we get the ripen. All right, I gotta go. (laughs) Screw that guy. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you this, Michael. Okay. When you uh, are cooking these burgers, are they burgers you purchased? Uh, they will be burgers I purchased. Then you call yes. it whatever you like. <laughs> <laughs> Saw that one coming and didn't get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like a steam train coming right at you. <laughs> I was re-listening to that episode not long ago and cracked myself up because there was a point where you guys were arguing about it and and I just you hear me pipe up in the background and go, what the hell is the difference? <laughs> I still don't really understand the difference. As a as a if Yankee, uh, go ahead, Scott. I'm sorry. No, no. That's, I was just gonna say if you're cooking it outside, it's barbecue. The period. That's that, <laughs> that's my definition. Well, you know the the other uh, argument I have is that uh, I purchased the thing I cooked it on in the barbecue section of Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> no, but 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 Scott Scott kind of nailed it right on the head. I mean, you know, I growing up in the north, you know, we you know we we barbecued as men. You went outside, you cooked on the grill. Uh, specifically with charcoal, uh, though we were not adverse to propane and propane accessories. Uh, but when I moved down here, you know, it, it, it is one of those things where these people take it, I mean, they have competitions and they take it seriously and there's St. Louis barbecue and there's Texas barbecue and there's all this other kind of stuff. So it's it's like one of those things that I understand from a cultural, on a cultural anthropo- anthropological level. But uh, I'm just I'm just bringing it up because I wanted to stir up some trouble right here at the beginning. <laughs> but I apologize. So you're just gonna walk in and upset the ar- apple cart and leave. You're the John Byrne of podcasting. That's what you <laughs> are. Yeah, but now I am going straight to inks. I'm not even doing rough pencils. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nerdy joke. There you go. <laughs> That's what we're all about. So, for our big Independence Day special for this year, what we are going to do is we are going to be looking at a series that I just very, very recently discovered even freaking existed. So, uh, real quick before I talk about this, I'm just going to put it out there. uh, Possible spoilers for uh, the current season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So, you know, if you don't want to be spoiled, if you don't want to know, if you're not all caught up, might not want to listen to this beginner part right here. But uh, essentially... 
because of a character that was introduced on that show, uh, I, I knew who he was by name. I kind of recognized the name when he came up, and it was spoiled for me somewhere that he was going to be coming up in this uh, this last season. And so it just kind of kind of relit the fires of something that I, I've always been kind of fascinated about anyway, which is the Captain Americas in between Steve Rogers and Steve Rogers. And what I mean by that is in between the time that, that Captain America was created and fought, you know, for, for America and mom and apple pie and everything uh, during World War II, after he was lost, it was retconned that the Captain Americas that existed between the time that you know he was retroactively lost at sea and the time that he was re- uh, resurrected in Avengers number four, that the Captain America that was published in those comics that were still coming out during that period were actually other Captain Americas. And I've always been kind of subtly fascinated by that because, you know, to this day, my, my favorite Captain America story is one that I've talked about many times on this show, and we actually covered at one point. Uh, the story where the Bucky of the 1950s comes back into Steve Rogers' life and for a time becomes his partner. Um, I always was really fascinated by that, the the idea that there were other Captain Americas that kind of filled in for Steve while he was missing. So the whole thing with this character uh, popping up on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. got me thinking about that again. So I was doing some basic research into, okay, you know, what are some other stories of these characters that are out there? And I happened to stumble across this four-issue miniseries called Captain America Patriot. And this miniseries is all about that character and his time uh, as Captain America essentially and I didn't really know what to expect going into it and was completely blown away by how awesome it is. I really really enjoyed this and uh, my my only thing with it is damn I I wish it was more than just the four issues because I I mean if they could maintain this quality I'd read a series about this guy. I thought it was that good so that's what we are here to discuss tonight. Now I'm curious for each of you, uh, what what's your uh, history with this series? I'll go first if if Paul doesn't mind sure, uh, with this. The um, a couple years ago at Dragon Con, uh, there is a vendor there that sells trade paperbacks at fifty percent off, and they've got like this huge table, and it's a lot of Marvel stuff from two thousand seven to two thousand ten because that's when Borders went out of business and liquidated their Marvel stock. And that just is why that stuff is so cheap on the secondary market. But I was kind of flipping through and I stumbled upon this trade paperback called Captain America Patriot. And I looked on the cover and there's the Patriot from the Liberty Legion. And I was just like, ooh, what is this? And I kind of flipped through it. I'm like, oh, screw it. I'm just going to buy it. It's half off. Screw it. And I have been fascinated ever since picking up Captain America number 350 off the shelves. In the back matter of that, they have these are the other men that were Captain America. And kind of like Scott, I was fascinated by this. You know, just now, like... Is that... It's like a, it's like a splash where they're yeah. all standing side by side with each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know the exact one you're talking... Well, one of them's like a mechanic or something, right? Yeah, that's Roscoe from the... Yeah. Uh, Oh, that's from, from the Nomad yes. uh, era. Way after the so, Secret Empire story when he became Nomad. He's the one that got murdered on the rooftop, right? Were, he's, he's no, on the... I don't think he was. He he went out 
as Captain, if my memory is correct, he went out as Captain America, uh, had a rope and was going to swing from a rooftop and actually swung into the building next to it, broke his oh, arm, and had to stop being Captain America. That's right. Okay. The, yeah, the one who that, got yeah. killed was actually a young kid, probably, I guess, you know, probably like 18, 19 years old, who was kind of, uh, an, he was apprenticing under the Falcon. And uh, he was slaughtered by the Red Skull. It was a, I think we we actually covered that issue at one time. I don't. Yeah. I don't yeah. remember. I don't who. think I was on for that episode, but yeah, I, I do remember that that got covered on the show. Now, just to give a little bit of, to, of context to this, um, the 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 one that we're talking about, the Patriot, essentially he's like the third Captain America because you've got Steve Rogers, of course. Mm-hmm. And then you have William Naslin, who was between Steve and the guy that we're going to cover. Naslin, um, he, prior to becoming Captain America, had been a character called... Spirit of 76. Spirit of 76. Yeah, Spirit of 76. And he was uh, pressed into the service to take over for Cap to create the illusion that Cap was you know, still out there and operating after Cap was lost at sea. And then Naslin was actually killed in action... Now, here's the funny thing with this, and this is kind of where I got kind of really kind of fascinated with the Patriot as a character, is that all of the Patriot's backstory, his origin, first appearance, everything, is actually, of all places, in an issue of What If. What If number four, I yes, want to say? Yes, and I, I, I just re, re-went through that uh, for the sake of this episode, so I'm, I'm going to pick up from you there. Uh, sure. That was kind of, and it was actually initially introduced as a What If issue, so it was going to be an alternate world, but it has since been adopted as canon in the Marvel Universe. And it was Roy Thomas who has a you know deep love for these older 1940s characters. And what the storyline is, you know, after Cap and Bucky get lost at sea with the Zemo uh, drone, uh, that the United States presses the spirit of 76 into action as the new Captain America. And a young man, I can't remember his name, he's in this story, uh, who actually had been a ball boy at Yankee Stadium who once posed as Bucky, and he becomes the new Bucky. Fred Davis. Fred Davis. Thank you, Mike. And uh, the storyline is fairly interesting in in, uh, What If Number 4 because it starts off basically in the aftermath of World War II. Uh, It starts off with the Human Torch and Toro going uh, after after Adolf Hitler, and Hitler is about to push some, a button that the Torch believes is going to blow up Berlin. So instead of allowing that to happen, he incinerates Hitler, which is kind of cool. <laughs> and uh, then the story goes where the, where the uh, government wants the invaders to continue, even though the war is effectively over, uh, as the all-winners squad in order to inspire people and to help you know, with crises that they have. Uh, Human Torch goes to visit Professor Horton, who created him, and it turns out that Professor Horton created a new android that is looking to take over the world and replace them uh, with androids, replace people with androids, much like what little girls are made of on Star Trek. Uh, Long story short, the Spirit of 76 Captain America ends up in a battle against one of the androids, has his chest crushed, and he's killed. But before he dies, he tells the Patriot of what went on and how he took over as Captain America. And the Patriot dons the Captain America costume and ends up being the final piece to defeat these, this android invasion. 
and takes over as Captain America from that point forward. And that's that story again was issued was was released as a an Elseworlds story effectively, but has since been taken on the uh, you know a canon position, and uh, to some extent is kind of like overlapped in this in this first issue that we get. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Well, I, I, I'm just a huge fan of the Invaders and all of that, all of the teams that came, you know, the Crusaders and the Liberty Legion and stuff like that. So that's another reason I was excited to pick up this trade. Uh, and like Scott, I just kind of fell in love with it. So I, I, I'm just fascinated. It's, it's just like another thing, you know, we may want to put this on, on the docket to cover at some point, which is Captain America Annual number six, where all of the Caps team up. You know, I don't right. know if either yeah, of you have seen it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I'd recommend that too because it's actually a pretty interesting story. But it's just, I just love that, you know, Roy Thomas and now Carl Kessel are so nerdy for this continuity that they want to, uh, wanted to explain how Captain America continued to exist after 1945 when it was established in Marvel continuity that he died, you know, you know, over the North Sea. But you had all of these issues of Captain America after that. Well, they did. Uh, you know, they the did 50s. have the 1950s Cap was explained earlier, mm-hmm. in, in and around Captain America 154, 155, which we covered one or two of those books in the past as well. But that was the Captain America of the 1950s, so it still left open yeah, a window right. from 1945 to 1950, whatever. Right, uh, yeah. See, that's the one that takes over, you know, not spoiler for the story that we <laughs> haven't synopsized yet, but that's the cap that would eventually take over from this Captain America, mm-hmm. uh, William Burnside. Now, so I that's the funny thing is I hadn't really thought about that with Fred Davis before, but yeah, you're right. So he was actually Bucky to two caps because, of course, Bucky Barnes was, was for all intents and purposes, he was dead then. So Fred actually was, was the Bucky for both of those caps. But then Burnside uh, had his own Bucky as well. Now, I don't know what his name was at the time, but eventually his Bucky would become, pardon me, um, Jack Monroe, Mm -hmm. uh, later Nomad when he teamed up with uh, with Steve Rogers. And then, you know, he went off and did his own thing. And for a time, he was even the the Scourge of the Underworld. We've talked a lot about that character, uh, you know, over the years on Back to the Bins. But yeah, it, it was that, it was that character that really led me in, you know, he was kind of my gateway into this whole, you know, the caps before cap type of thing, uh, to begin with. But so I, I've kind of focused on him, uh, you know, in that capacity as the, the Bucky of the fifties, but then discovering this guy, the Patriot, he, he doesn't have a lot of comic book presence, but, but what's out there is really fascinating. And of course it led me directly to this series, which I, I just thought was phenomenal. I've I really enjoyed it. I, I hope at some point maybe this is picked up and they do more stuff like this. I, I, I don't, I don't know what the reception was on this. I tried to, to research that and couldn't really find much on it. So I don't know. Um, Did you guys ever read that Captain America theater of war about the fifties cap? No. What is it's- this? It's, it was a, they did these specials. It was called Captain America Theater of War. And they did a bunch of different ones, you know, different eras of Cap and all that. But they did one uh, about the 50s Cap. And it was written uh, and drawn by Howard Chaikin. 
So it's it's a really good special. I really I, I gotta recommend this as well uh, because you know it's 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 Chaykin doing what Chaykin does best in my opinion, and he plays it really straight. Like it's not silly or over the top, but it's a '50s cap story that uh, that I I bought the single issue and then I bought a really nice hardcover of it a couple years ago. So I'd recommend that one too. I remember when that came out, and I just assumed I with the title Theater of War that it was taking place during World War II. No, this is taking place during the Cold War. Right, so. okay. Uh, who was the artist on that? I know you said Chaykin. Chaykin. Oh, Chaykin was the, the artist, too? Is yeah. it good Chaykin, or not it's so good, good Chaykin? Chaykin? It's good Chaykin. Is there such thing? Oh, okay, good. I mean, uh, yeah, okay. There, there is. There, there, there is, actually. Is, I'm being but, facetious. Uh, there's also such a, there's, uh, there's also such a thing as bad Chaykin, because... Uh, I've been on a, a kick lately. I've been reading a lot of Dynamite comics and uh, been reading a ton of The Shadow. And he actually did a Shadow miniseries for uh, Dynamite. And I was really excited about that because it was Chaykin's 80s Shadow miniseries that got me into The Shadow. So I was, you know, hey, there's more Chaykin Shadow? Awesome. And not so much. Now, I can't speak to the story because I haven't read it yet, but the art is not good. And I was really kind of sad to, to learn that because I'm a huge fan of that 80s Shadow Mini that he did way back when. But, of course, that was, you know, what, 33 years ago. So there you go. <laughs> Comics for old people. <laughs> so are we ready to get day, into the synopsis? good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In my day, he drew Star Wars, and we were happy for it. Um, <laughs> sorry. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> All righty. I, uh, I volunteered to do the synopsis on this because, you know, I don't come by often, so i got to sing for my supper, basically. It says, Captain America Patriot, originally published in late 2010 into early 2011. It was written by Carl Kessel, with art by Mitch Breitweiser, and... Uh, I believe his wife did the coloring in this, uh, which actually has to be mentioned on its own as well, because the artwork in this thing is amazing. I think the Clydesdales worked on the coloring, too. <laughs> oh, sorry, that's Budweiser. Never mind. <laughs> Part 1. Born on the 4th of July. July of 1941, reporter Jeff Mace covered Captain America, breaking up a group of Nazi saboteurs trying to... Well, they're trying to sabotage the Brooklyn shipyards. That's what saboteurs do. Mace becomes part of the story when he does what you should do to Nazi sympathizers. Punches one in the face when he tries to escape. Captain America is thankful and compliments Jeff on his actions, going so far as to call him a patriot. Despite getting an earful from his editor, Jeff discusses the events with his co-workers, Mary and photographer Casey, and eventually decides to become a masked crime fighter. Calling himself the Patriot, Jeff takes the fight to the would-be saboteurs and enemies of democracy all through the summer and fall. Mary suspects Jeff of being the Patriot, but is more playful about it and even manages to scoop him on some of the stories. Everything changes in December when the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. Jeff feels like he has to do more than he has been, and in addition to becoming a voice for the Allied efforts through movie serials and radio shows, he becomes part of a team known as the Liberty Legion. In December of 1943, Mary is kidnapped by a Nazi scientist and rescued by the Patriot. The next day, Mary suggests becoming the Patriot's partner, 
now that she has developed superpowers thanks to the machinations of the Nazi scientist. Jeff lets her down easy, but there is some doubt with Jeff about her being kidnapped in the first place. In April of 1945, the Liberty Legion basically falls apart. A little over a, little over a year later, Jeff is being interrogated by a governmental organization about a mission he took part in with the All-Winners Squad. During that mission, Jeff found the body of Captain America, but is soon shocked when the men and women questioning him ask him to become the next Captain America. He is told that the original Cap died a year earlier in a mission over the North Sea. Believing the world needed Captain America, they recruited another man to fill that role, and now, since that man is dead, they are asking Jeff. Jeff accepts and becomes the third Captain America. Part 2. All winners. In September of 1946, Miss Patriot breaks up a gang of black market drug runners. The crooks smell her lavender perfume. This is important for later. And by the way, I forgot to mention this, but Miss Patriot is married. After taking them down, they ask her where the Patriot is. The answer is the Patriot is now Captain America, fight and fighting with the all-winners squad against former Soviet allies in England. The winners are ensuring a scientist suspected of passing secrets to the Soviets would be safe to stay on trial. During the ride home, Namor proves that he has a giant ass and continually insults Jeff, picking at him for not being as good as the original Cap. When the winners land, Jeff gives a speech as Cap. Mary hears the speech and recognizes the voice as belonging to Jeff. Later, Jeff talks to the winner's liaison, Betsy Ross, no really, that's her name, Betsy Ross, and is told that the original Cap was a true super soldier, which makes Jeff doubt himself even further. Mary arrives and wants to speak with Jeff, and by speak, I mean she hints that if there is ever an opening for a new Bucky, she's the woman for the job. The meeting ends poorly and things get worse when Jeff is told that his old friend Casey had committed suicide. Jeff wants Captain America to speak at Casey's funeral, but is told by Betsy that this isn't possible because ba Casey was blue-ticketed. Basically, Casey was probably gay, and Captain America can't be seen giving a speech at a gay man's funeral. Jeff decides that if he can't go as Cap, he'll go as Patriot and delivers a stirring eulogy. The eulogy is denounced by several groups, and the Patriot is essentially blacklisted. Jeff has the Human Torch destroy his Patriot uniform, and when Namor tells him that all of his actions mean nothing, Jeff does what I think anyone wants to do with Namor and punches him in the face. This raises his Bucky's opinion of him over and over the next year the two fight both alone and with the squad. In April 1948, the squad surprises Jeff with a surprise birthday party. That night, he and Bucky are on patrol. They get separated and gunshots ring out. Cat finds Bucky on the ground bleeding as a car races away. Cap picks Bucky up and is intent on getting him to the hospital. Both men smell something... something Jeff hasn't smelled in years. Lavender. Part 3. Truth and Justice. As doctors work to save Bucky's life, Jeff refuses all offers of help to catch the people that shot his partner. His first stop is Mary's apartment, and he all but accuses her of shooting Bucky because of the lavender perfume. Mary denies any involvement, points Jeff in the direction of the men responsible. Jeff takes a chance that he's not being sent on a wild goose chase and leaves. Mary packs a bag and does the same. The tip leads to Chinatown, and Jeff wades through a series of goons until he is finally confronted by Lavender, the woman that really shot Bucky. Cap takes her down and nearly starts to beat on her when he is stopped by a woman in a golden outfit. It's Betsy who decided to help Jeff anyway. Turns out she's put on the costume to help because she was assigned to 
be his liaison, and she might as well wear a costume while doing so. Later, Jeff visits Bucky in the hospital and tells his partner that he is taking on another partner until Bucky gets back on his feet. Bucky takes on the... Excuse me, not Bucky. (laughs) Betsy takes on the name Golden Girl and fights... That would be a more interesting story, though. Uh, Betsy takes on the name Golden Girl and fights with Jeff alongside the all-winner squad until Jeff up and resigns, preferring to work with Betsy outside of the team. The team is sore about this, but his mind is made up. Later, Jeff walks Betsy home and tries to kiss her, but she wants to maintain a professional relationship. He leaves, and Betsy heads inside, where she she is confronted by her superior. Turns out Mary was seen with two communist agents. And since Jeff was the last one to see her, the feds now want to investigate Captain America. Betsy is ordered to stay close to him. She isn't happy about it, and in the end, she is protecting her country. Protecting it from Captain America. Part 4. There wasn't a title for this one. June 30th, 1950. Jeff is brought to FBI headquarters to be questioned about the night's events. Four months earlier, Captain America and Golden Girl foiled another purse snatcher... She's called the Golden Girl. I can't believe I didn't make a joke about that. Uh, Foil another purse snatcher, but afterwards Jeff expresses his dissatisfaction about not being by the government to tackle more global threats. Betsy tells him that she she isn't cut out for the superhero thing, and after Jeff kisses her, she tells him that she's been reassigned. She's gotten too close to him, and that has colored the way Washington looks at Captain America. His new liaison will be Fred Davis, the former Bucky that got shot. Later, Jeff meets with Fred and is told why he hasn't been directly involved with the bigger threats. Turns out the the government sees Captain America as a deterrent, not a direct weapon. They want him to maintain his neighborhood presence and give speeches at places like schools. Fred tells him to give them a little longer and they'll work everything out. In June of 1950, Jeff is giving a speech at a school as Captain America when he hears of a boy that has disappeared. Later that night, Skinner contacts Cap who has tracked the little boy, Danny Kutarski, to a graveyard in the town called Valhalla. Rumor has it that he was kidnapped by aliens. Cat finds the supposed aliens and rescues the boy while bringing the place crashing down around them. They run for it, but are caught by, of all people, Fred Davis. Turns out the whole alien thing was a front for a government project, and that brings us to the beginning of this issue. Skinner tells Jeff that he wasn't properly vetted before becoming Captain America. He has left his ties before the war, and being associated with Mary Morgan, a suspected communist, hasn't helped. Jeff's refusal to tell them where Mary might be leads Skinner to threaten to send him to the front lines of Korea. Fred tells Jeff that they can get his clearance upgraded so he can join them. Jeff suspects this was Fred's idea all along, though he doesn't approve of kidnapping a kid to get to this point. Jeff doesn't believe he would be a, a good as a clandestine agent, but Skinner is another story. He shuts off the recording and accuses Skinner of orchestrating everything to get Jeff sent to Korea for being disloyal, while Skinner gets a position with the ultimate covert agency fighting the Cold War. Jeff thinks that J. Edgar Hoover might not be too happy to find out how Skinner set everything up and reveals he's been secretly taping the conversation. Skinner asks Jeff what he wants to keep all of this to himself. Sometime later, Betsy Ross answers the phone at her FBI post, and it's Jeff. He wants to report a crime, a pretty woman eating lunch alone. The story ends with the very first editorial for the Glendale Gazette, written by its editor, Jeff Mix. Jeff and Betsy, who is now a schoolteacher, are married, and Jeff is going to do his best to do right by his community through his paper. That evening, Betsy and Jeff discuss the new Captain America, 
and Jeff is none too impressed with this Kami basher. They discuss his career and how he never could stand bullies. Jeff reveals that the best part about being Captain America was the look in people's eyes. They didn't just see Cap, they saw the promise America holds, the better angels of their nature. Betsy tells him that he is not only the bravest, but, pros- but the most stubborn man she has ever met. He fights for what he believes in, with or without his shield, and think that simply means that he loves his country. But she tells him he's wrong. The problem with Jeff Mace is he's a patriot. All right, see you next week, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Bravo, sir. Excellent synopsis. I know Uh, that that was not easy, but uh, you did a masterful job. Thank you. Thank you, sir. That was good. We've had single-issue synopsis that took longer and and less informative. (laughs) Right now, there is still a con synopsis going on as we speak. (laughs) It's in the mirror universe from Star Trek. Right. <laughs> well, what do we think about this one? Uh, what uh, we want to do overall impressions, and then go on into breaking down and notes and all that fun stuff. Sure. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to jump out first because I think you both kind of already given your overall thoughts to some extent, and I, sure. I kind of haven't. And uh, I would just start off with the fact that I had not read this. I did have it, but for some reason I hadn't read it. And then after you read it, you were uh, pretty high on it, and you told me, so then I put it aside and read it, and that's when I said, you know what, guys, what do you think about doing this on the 4th of July weekend? Uh, Because I did enjoy it. I enjoyed reading this thing, and and we'll get into some more specifics about it. But I I liked the fact that each issue kind of had its own little story arc going, but each issue kind of played into the next. It did a really good job of playing with that continuity that Roy Thomas had created in that what-if issue that we had talked about earlier without ever setting aside any of that continuity. It just fleshed out this Patriot character to a point that I don't think he had ever been fleshed out at all before. I think he had just kind of been a cipher before this. So I really liked all of that. Uh, I like the fact that also the storyline kind of changes a little bit. There's a point where it feels like kind of film noir, and there's a point where it feels like just you know a a, uh, a World War II propaganda movie almost. Like there's so many things in it that just kind of you know the tone changes as it goes from issue to issue, and I really like the way it did because it did so in a seamless way where it didn't feel like you were being forced into something. Uh, the last thought is I have mixed feelings on the artwork. I know, Mike, you said you loved it, and that's all well and good. Uh, but there's points where the artwork just seems just a tough touch too rough for me. Like, like he laid out a nice image, and then because of the... I don't know if it's painted or if it's made to look like it's painted, but it's just not quite tight enough for me in some of the images. And uh, I think, if I remember right, I think the fourth issue had my best example of that. But we'll, as we go through it, I'll, I'll try and remember to point out where that was. So, but overall, I did really enjoy reading this. I apologize, Paul. Uh, in the interest of uh, credit where credit's due, I'd, I'd forgotten that you proposed doing this as our Independence Day one. Uh, I, I, that's right, because I read it, loved it, thought it was awesome, shot it out to uh, to you guys to want to do it, 
and uh, we were going to do it some time ago, and you you were the one that was like, you know what, I think this would be better as a as an Independence Day episode. So yeah, kudos to you because I, I think it does work better that way as well. Well, that's and I wasn't looking for credit. I didn't mean it that way. So, uh, <laughs> but but I'll take it. I think it speaks very highly of the series that you know in between. The time that I discovered it and sitting down to record this episode, I've read it three times, and it's I, I still have the same opinion of it. So I, I think that speaks very highly to it. it. It's not one of those where I read it and loved it, and then you know read it again later and was like, yeah, it's it's actually I can pick these holes and that sort of thing. It's it's really not. I mean, it's a really solid story, and uh, and it really holds up. Now I'll agree with that too, and it, it, it I am a fan of stories set like right before, during, and after World War II. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know why I'm fascinated by that particular piece of American history, but there was... it's Everybody likes to play that it was like this more innocent time. And I really don't think it was at all. I think a lot of the things... uh, And I'm not going to turn this into a political thing, but I just wanted to make the point that I think a lot of the feelings that we're having now were feelings people were having back in, you know, post-World War II and in the early 50s. You know, you can draw direct parallels to certain things going on now and then. And I, I think that's why when when you have uh, creators take on a story in a con- from a contemporary standpoint, but set like 50, 60 years ago, sometimes that can go really bad. And sometimes it can go really good. And All-Star Squadron, I think it, it was like you had equal measure of both of that. Where sometimes it was really good and sometimes it's like, God, Roy, could you stop heaping it on? Because you're getting it kind of right. thick in here. But to <laughs> me, I think Kessel, he had his protagonist, you know, Jeff Mace, have a very clear vision of what he wanted to do. And you had other people in the story that disagreed with that, but they were never played as mustache-twirling villains. They were people that were against him, and I personally thought they were wrong. But I think one of the things I like about this story is that Kessel explores these changing political opinions, and what's fine in World War II is not fine after the war, and he kind of makes a point, but I don't think he beats the audience over the head with it. And I think in the overall, that is one of the best things about the series. Yeah, yeah, I will agree with that because there's there's one, well, actually there's several, but there, there's at least one really big quote-unquote political thing that happens in this story. And I think he handled it very well, you know, so that no matter what your personal feelings on that issue may be, you know, where you fall personally, politically yourself, I think the way that it was handled in the story, I looked at it and said, you know what, that that's what Captain America would do. And and I, I thought that, you know, that's Jesus, that's a difficult thing to do. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? To be able to do something like that, that's that's going to appease, you know, no matter where you fall you know, anybody of any persuasion like that and still make it come off true to the character um, and, you know, ringing true, but also in in a way that people aren't going to get all up in arms about it. Or at least I I would hope that they would not. So, yeah, you know, kudos to him. That's one of the things that really 
surprised me the most about this series is who wrote it. Now, that's not to slag Carl Kessel, but I know him as an extraordinary inker. I don't know him as a great author. And this is a, I mean, it's a really great story that, that he crafted here. So it kind of shocks me because I'm just, I, I can't think of anything else of his I ever read. Adventures that I of Superman was, and Superboy? Yeah, see, I don't, I, I don't remember anything in there that really stood out, though. Uh, I mean, I don't okay. remember anything that I thought was terrible, but I'm, I'm just saying, I don't remember reading anything that I thought, wow, you know, this, this Castle guy, he's just, you know, wow, this is extraordinary. So I, I remember reading a lot of it and thinking it was, you know, it was, it was standard Superman fare of the time, you know. I know he was trying to do extraordinary things with Superboy. I just wasn't feeling it, especially when he was doing the. Um, you know the the commandy riff with Superboy and all that. Uh, I mean, again, not bad. And he now correct me if I'm wrong. Did he come up with Hypertime? No, was Hypertime. That? Hypertime was the thing that Mark Wade. I think Grant Morrison was involved a little bit, but that was the thing that came out of that Kingdom event from late 1998. Superboy was the first place that Hypertime got explored. Because they did a right, Superboy right. story and then they did a Flash story. Okay, so I, I was thinking that he was. I, I thought Hypertime spun out of the Superboy, not the other way around. Okay, but like I say, I mean, I, I'm not saying that to, to slag Kessel at all. Mm. It's just, you know what I mean? It, it would be like, you know, suddenly you read a, a, a great. Uh, oh, I'm trying to think of, you know, just somebody. Uh, you know, like Jim Apero. All of a sudden, you read like this your, this story, and you're like, "Oh my God, this is a great!" Oh my God, Jim Apero wrote this. I didn't know he ever wrote anything. It was kind of that to me. You know, it's like I, I I knew that Kessel had done some writing, but I just I never remembered reading anything that just really floored me. And this floored me. It really did. I I, I walked away from this just really wanting more, which is a sign of a really good story. You know? Yeah, I, I have to side with you on that. In that, I remember seeing Kessel's name as a writer in the past, but I don't remember ever having strong feelings, good or bad. Not you know, not just that it wasn't it didn't stand out as good. Nothing stood out as bad either. I just thought he was right. you know, kind of run of the mill stuff, basically. Right. Yeah, and that and that's all I meant by that. Because I mean to me, the the two things that stood because I'd forgotten that he did Superman I, 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 the two things that stood out to me that I remembered him doing was uh, his run on Superboy, and uh, didn't he do at least one of the Hawk and Dove minis? He wrote the mini, and he and Barbara wrote the mini and the ongoing. Oh, okay, so he did the ongoing too. Yeah, see, I remember that. And again, not bad, but you know, I mean, it wasn't anything you know that that blew my socks off either. I just remembered that he had done it. So uh, I, mean, I do know that. He- he was kind of the Jimmy Cricket when Mark Wade and Mike Rowingo were doing Fantastic Four. Kessel was mm-hmm. making it, but Wade has gone out of his way to say how much uh, Kessel contributed to the stories and kind of kept them doing the Fantastic Four the way they thought the Fantastic Four should be done. So it's it's kind of interesting. He's He's kind of a one, he's a heck of a nice guy because I got to meet yeah. him at Dragon Con a couple of years ago, and he was like just a super approachable, really nice, willing to talk about the work uh, kind of creator. And uh, it, I, I just, you could feel in this story that he had a particular love of, if not Captain America in general, 
this era of Captain America. Yeah, I would agree with that too. I, I think as a writer, especially if you have you know some creative ideas, obviously, but I think as a writer, it must be very enjoyable to come up with something like this, where you have a character like the Patriot, who apparently has a history, but that history has never really been explored. So you can kind of take it wherever you want, and you can be as creative as you'd like. And I think he did a great job with it here. Uh, mm-hmm. But but I think, you know, like, as a writer, that's just got to be a great thing, to, to look at it and say, hey, you know what? There's an, there's an aspect of uh, this character that's never been explored, and I get to just you know, within reason, have carte blanche to write it myself and, and fill in the blanks. And like I said, one of the things I really liked about it is that he never stepped on any of the history that, that did exist. He just folded it right into it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I liked the feel. It reminded me in, in certain aspects of a couple of other projects I'd seen that, that did this sort of thing uh, in much the same way, um, Marvels came immediately to mind because um, I, I thought the artwork and some of the layouts were very similar to that. And also, there was a, another series. Um, it was the one with the cop, Code of Honor, I think yes. was the name of it. Mm-hmm. And, and it reminded me of, of both of those, uh, you know, in good ways because I, I have very high opinions of both of those series as well. So, yeah. what I liked about Code of Honor is it takes place in like the '70s Marvel. Which, as, yeah. as we know, is my favorite hour. Right. Uh, but that's... Uh, like I said, I think the layouts in this are really good. So I don't argue with you there. It's the finishing work on it that just kind of seems a little too rough at spots. And the spots where it seems fine. You know, I, I talked about how there's different kind of feels throughout it. At the point where it feels like a, uh, like a film noir thing, you know, when Bucky gets shot and he's investigating it, that area of the artwork seems fine to me. But there's areas where it's a little bit more superhero-y, and I feel like the art should just be a little cleaner there. And I wouldn't want it to be too dramatically different, because it's all one story. But I would like to have seen it, like I said, just, just a little bit cleaner. There's a couple of points where, you know, I'm trying to remember. It was definitely in the fourth issue. Uh, let me see if I can find where it is. I'm going to be honest with you, while you look for that, I really like the art in this. And it surprises me because I, I see exactly what you're talking about. Some of it is a little scratchy and all. And, and in in a different story or in different kinds of comics, this particular art style would probably really annoy me. But there's something about it in this that I think really works. I really liked the, uh, the art style in this. I, I thought that somebody was doing, uh, you know, kind of aping a little bit the Brubaker stuff, mm-hmm. um, but also trying to give it a, you know, that, I don't want to say necessarily a noir feel, but just a feeling like it, it was of its time. And I really felt that. I really felt like, okay, this is the 40s and the 50s in this story. And it, I, I thought... The, the artists in this did a really masterful job of capturing the look of the eras that this story is supposed to be taking place in. And I, I totally bought it on that level. It reminded me a lot of, uh, you know, while the, the art style's very different, 
it, it was still very reminiscent to me of um, uh, Nathaniel Dusk that Gene Cullen had done uh, for mm-hmm. DC back uh, in the 80s. I really liked that as well. I thought did a very similar thing with kind of the lighter colors and, uh, you know, very moody lighting and that sort of thing. I really like the look of I don't, it. I don't mind the moody lighting. Like I said, sometimes it's just the, the roughness that just kind of didn't sit right with me at points. Uh, I see where Paul's coming from. This is kind of like Steve Epting and Michael Lark had a kid. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and yeah. That's, yeah. That's okay, a great that, it, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna. Uh, I, I remember like the one that I don't know why, but it really just looked bad to me. Uh, when he's talking to uh, Betsy Ross on the rooftop, in is it the third issue or the fourth? It's in the fourth issue. Uh, I think that's the third issue. No, this is the, just. The, there's the page where he kind of kisses her when she tells him she's being reassigned. Page before that. Right. Right. The the bottom row all the way to the left. Cap's face. Looks like he took it and rubbed it in charcoal. Just the... <laughs> I'm sorry, what did you say? That. I, again, I think it's supposed to be... I think I, I can see what you're saying. I think it's supposed to be moody lighting, but yeah, it does look like like uh, like a cross between like a dirty face and like five o'clock shadow on one side of his face or something. Yeah. So I I definitely see what you're what you're saying. I mean, this is not my preferred art style, but for this particular story, I I thought it really worked. Um, but yeah, I definitely see what you're saying because, you know. This scratchy, you know, a lot of lines on the face and stuff. I mean, with other artists, uh, I've complained about this very same thing, and here I'm praising it. So, you know, yes. Well, sometimes I feel like I'm I'm a little too narrow-minded on it because I do like you. Generally, shy away from the scratchy stuff, and sometimes I understand that different styles fit different types of storytelling. And I, I have to make a conscious effort sometimes to expand my scope on these things. And in this particular book, very often, I thought the style fitted and I enjoyed it. But there's also points, again, like to me where it was getting a little bit more superhero-y and a little bit less film noir. I wish it kind of had brightened up and gotten a little cleaner. Not tremendously. I, I, would, I wouldn't want the, the style to contrast itself too much within the same story. But just a little bit. Right. And I, and I think that would have served the story well if they had done that. I think it also helps that he really nails the eras and the clothing and the building and the art, the building, you know, like the architecture and all that. The only thing really missing is like ashtrays full of cigarettes, right. uh, essentially, because because you know if, if if things were a little smokier, I, I think it would have it would have been a little more realistic. And it, it just, also would have gone towards that mood that you know that you yeah. that, that you're saying you know, and I'm agreeing that. You know, you did want to set that that smoky mood a little bit. It would have explained some of the scratchiness, I think. <laughs> right? But no, it's just like stories set in this time period. There is a really great Green Lantern novel that was published about maybe like eight nine years ago. Uh, it was a, a, a trilogy called the Sleepers trilogy. And the yeah. second part of that was a Golden Age Green Lantern story. And it was basically like the origin of Green of the Golden Age Green Lantern. 
and the way they wrote that and the the settings they used and you know the 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 time period specific stuff it's just i can't get enough of that in comics i really can't because i i have a hard time sometimes reading golden age comics like i have tried to read captain america books from the golden age and some of them are really hard to get through just for whatever reason maybe it's the art maybe it's the writing but i love stories set in that era so maybe i need to expand my horizons and read more golden age stories but you know this this is like it's like carl kessel served me up a a a meal specifically geared towards my my likes almost it's like it's it's continuity porn it's Captain America, it's set in the, you know, the 40s and, you know, like getting into the early 50s. And it's just like, you know, what else what else can you pile on top of this? And maybe that blinded me a little to some of the maybe there are shortcomings that I'm not seeing. But I'm just choosing just to love the story on its merits and not try too hard to pick it apart to find things to dislike about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I really I, I don't off the top of my head, I, I can't think of any real nitpicks I had with this story. I, I This is one of those rare stories where everything I, I had a note to talk about was something to praise the story or something where I, I really geeked out or you know something like that. Um, I'll tell you, I wondered if you caught this, Mike, because one of my biggest geek outs in this was actually in the second issue. Um, unfortunately, the pages are not numbered, but this is right after he punches Namor. He, he smacks him, but good for what uh, for what Namor had said about the foolishness of of the Patriot, you know, going to his friend's funeral and all. That next page is nothing but a bunch of newspaper clippings. You've got you know Cap and Bucky break up Protector Racket and these different news clippings down at the bottom under April nineteen forty eight. It says Baxter Building embraces K bracing. It says future home of, uh, for All Winter Squad on architectural front line, and it, it's just a brief little blurb here about basically the Baxter Building is is being built, and you see a word balloon that says they say you can lift up the whole building by one corner. <laughs> yeah. Now the fact that they're saying that, and it says Baxter Building embraces K bracing. The same way that they would often abbreviate kryptonite as like red K or green K or whatever. I'm taking this as a nod to one of my all-time favorite single issues, Fantastic Four number 249, <laughs> where the the, um, the uh, gladiator comes to Earth and mops the floor with the Fantastic Four. Because in that story... The Gladiator, who, for those that don't know, is nothing more than uh, the Marvel Universe's version of Superboy, picks up the Baxter building. And when he picks it up, I think it's the thing, if I remember right, that says, how can he do that? How can he pick the entire building up by one corner and the building doesn't collapse? Here's your explanation. I think that's brilliant. And I I mean, you know, Kessel worked on Superman. It, this has to be him giving a nod to that and i just think it's awesome I, I i love that i think that's so cool i geeked out so hard when i read that uh i did catch that and kessel worked on superman but that man is in love with fantastic four. Oh right right yeah he is a huge and i just read that as kirby bracing 
mm. uh, for cave racing. Uh, that, that's oh, how yeah, I took so, that. Yes. So, uh, yeah. But yeah, that whole lift it by one corner. I mean, that, that goes also to the fact that the building got to shoot up into space right. in the early <laughs> issues of Fantastic Four. So, no, I, you know, it's just, I, I think the, the one thing about this story that I liked the most, more than the continuity, uh, you know, overload, more than the action, more than the fact that it's just a really well-told comic, I just liked Jeff Mace as a character. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I, he was, he, he is one of those guys that I wish I could be. You know, like he has his moral compass and it is set in one direction. And he and that line that got echoed in the Captain America film, I can't stand bullies. Just like that is the that is the purest motivation for a for a superhero is basically he was a reporter. He was on the docks. He was watching Captain America fight. He saw one of those Nazi saboteurs leaving, and he's just like, no, no, that ain't happening. And he punches the guy in the face. And it just, it, it just, uh, you know, just fills his very essence. And I, and I love that they kind of tie him a little bit to the thing, because uh, I love the fact that they refer to the punch as a Yancey Street, uh, what was it? A Yancey Street hello? Right, in that, yeah. In that first issue, so, I, and and when you get into the post-war era, you know he's doing his thing as Captain America, but he wants to be doing more. And at the end of the story, he's not busting up bad guys, but he's doing, to me, what I think is one of the most patriotic things you can do, is speak your mind and do it through the press. You know, even if you disagree, even if you agree. Either way, with what you're seeing in your local, state, or federal government, speaking about it is one of the purest things you can do to express yourself as a patriot. So the fact that he ends the story with his wife as a school teacher and him as a small-town newspaper editor, I mean, it's just the perfect ending for the guy. Yeah, no, I, I like that they didn't kill him off at the end. Because that was what I, right, where I feared yeah. the story was going. Now, I knew that wasn't ju- going to happen only because I know that he appears later on in you know unless they were going to retcon it or something like that. But he does appear later in in Steve Rogers' life as an old man. So I I, I didn't think that they were going to go in that direction. But I, at the same rate, I didn't know exactly where this was going to go either. I like the fact you know everything you say is, is true. But did you notice, because it actually took one of the rereads for me to actually notice this, he bucks the current trend of comics. He, they, they didn't give him a lot of, you know, they didn't really give him a motivation beyond that, you know, that, that motivation that Superman so often gets criticized for. He's just a good guy trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And there's really not much more to him than that. What what I found really interesting about him is that rather than give him, you know, bigger motivations or some dark thing or something like that, what they really did was they made him very, very human, even more so than like Steve Rogers, because Steve Rogers, you know, for all of 
you know what they were trying to go for with a with a nice you know every man trying to do the right thing at the end of the day he's a super soldier this mm-hmm. guy's not even that i mean this he's just a regular dude he's a reporter they never really go into in this story you know anything as far as like his physical training but he does continually point out himself that i'm no super soldier i'm just a guy not only that but he he was rejected the for the army the he was 4F because of yeah, flat yeah, feet or something. Yeah, he was 4F. And you see that in the story that, you know, he he's much more fallible than the real Cap. He gets shot, you know, he gets knocked about, things like that. One of the things I really liked in this story, he's not real bright, you know, or at least when he speaks, he doesn't come across that way because every time he tries to, to do Captain America's speeches in public off the cuff, he stammers and and it really bo- it bothers him and you can tell that because he continually says I just I'm no good at the speeches you know I like that it, it gives a very human and, and fallible edge to this guy that just makes him that much more likable because he's arguably more of a superhero than a lot of the other superheroes that we read about because He's got huge shoes to fill mm-hmm. without the edge. He has no powers. You know, even Captain America, you know, the real Captain America, uh, you know, to a certain degree has powers because of the super soldier serum. That that's not running through this guy's veins. You know, uh, the only thing running through his bla- veins is, you know, the red, white and blue. That's that's it. Yeah, in fact, know? they specifically tell him Captain America went through that process, but we can't do it anymore. So, right. <laughs> you know, forget about it. Let me ask you something, and I'm going to give you the caveat beforehand because I know what I, where I go with this. If you were going to make a live-action version of this, who would you cast as the Patriot? And let me explain to you, though, you could pick anybody through time because the person who I have in mind is somebody we'd have to go back about 40 years to 50 years for him to play the part. Oh gosh! Um, mm. And I and I thought it based on one particular picture, so I will point that to you when I give you my thoughts. Let me think, because there was there's actually one of the issues ends with with one of my favorite pictures of him. Let me see if I can think. If I can go through time, I would say, and this is going to sound really silly, but it's not. Did you guys ever see the Mortal Kombat movie? No. The live Mm -hmm. action one? Um, The guy that played Johnny Cage would physically be able to pull off the character. Plus his kind of attitude through that movie uh, I think also would do very well. I wish I had his name on the tip of my, uh, you know, know, at, at the drop of a hat. Um... I don't know. Even Chris Pine would be a really good patriot. He, he wouldn't. Wouldn't. I can't say he'd be bad. Um, what I'm. What I'm thinking of. Where. Where I, where I went is. And again, I had to go back in time for this. But if you go to the fourth issue, when they're uh, a- after the whole scene when he rescues the little boy, when they, when they're confronting him, uh, there's. The second page of that part of the story, it's got one, two, three, four rows of pictures. And in the bottom row, the middle picture, do you see what I'm talking about? 
where he says treason because of me? Uh, yes. Um, based on that picture alone, I would cast David McCallum from the Man with Man from Uncle. Yeah, I don't know who that is. He was Ilya Koryakin on NCIS. <laughs> he was Ilya Koryakin from the Man from Uncle. It was uh, Robert Vaughn, and then the, you know, the more suave Russian guy. Yeah, I remember. I remember Robert Vaughn. I don't. I don't remember the other guy. Hmm. That'd be interesting because I I think of him as Ducky from NCIS. <laughs> He's the uh, well, the medical example. Much much older then. <laughs> Uh, but here's the funny thing: there is a there have been several episodes of NCIS where they went into his backstory and they found a guy that looked just like him when he was younger. Well, then that's who I would cast. Yeah, so that, <laughs> that's the guy you go for now. I mean, but yeah, I could kind of see that because I love David McCallum. Uh, and there was an episode of NCIS where Robert Vaughn guest starred, and they just kind of looked at each other. Oh, that's so, cool. I just I. I got a kick out of it, though. So. <laughs> I always, I always well, love those I, moments, uh, especially when they're not too, too heavy-handed. There was one panel. Now, shoot, I, I had it marked, and now I, I moved the page. But there were a couple of times where I thought that Betsy, before she became the Golden Girl, there were a couple of times where I thought that she really looked like 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 the character model they were using for her was uh what what's Ronnie Howard's daughter's name? Dallas. Bryce? Oh, Bryce, Bryce, Bryce Howard. Howard. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah if Jessica you look, Chastain. If you look on it's actually going back to that one I was talking about before about the Baxter building be, you know embraces K bracing the very next page last panel where she's smiling and she says, "Of course not." She says, "It's just good to mm-hmm. take stock of your life every so often." That tell me, that's not Dallas Bryce Howard right there. Definitely has a she resemblance looks, she to looks it. Like her when she was playing when she was playing Gwen Stacy. I mm-hmm. think she looks just like her right there. Well, I think obviously, yeah. if you're going to have a golden girl throughout history, you would either cast B. Arthur. <laughs> uh, I think you got to go Betty White. Rue McClanahan. I'm blanking on the last one. I feel bad about that because I love that Estelle Getty. Estelle Getty, yes. So one of the other things that I really liked about this is there's a moment where, and this could have been played badly, but, you know, when he finds out his buddy Casey was killed or had committed suicide, And at first, Betsy tries to play it off as, like, you know, there are some servicemen who came back. They can't find work. So they, you know, they kind of kill themselves. You know, they they end up committing suicide. Uh, I I thought that could have been seen as making a political point, but it's the, the pacing of the scene is such that you don't focus on it. But I just love that Jeff decided if he can't go as Captain America, he is still going to speak for his friend somehow. And he ends up sacrificing a significant portion of himself in doing so. And that's another thing where, agreed with him or not, you at least have to respect that he had the courage of his convictions to do something. You know? Right. So I, I... That to me is like the most powerful part of it, because the way the scene plays out 
you know, Mary is at the funeral, you see a red gloved hand go on top of hers, and then you turn the page, and he's in his Patriot outfit. And it was just like, wow, that one, that was a really great trick. Because you're like, well, did he go as Cap anyways? But two, it just it just led to, you know, one of the more powerful scenes of the of the series, punctuated by him punching Namor in the face. So, and then breaking his hand in the process. But man, it's just like Namor is great in this. By the way, I just want to say that as a, a as a little side note, Namor is everything Namor is in this series. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's kind of a jerk throughout the entire thing. Yeah. Well, he's supposed to be a jerk. That's the yeah, thing. That's, that's my point. <laughs> that's the thing. If if you don't like Namor because he's a jerk, that's okay. <laughs> but you need to understand that that's his role, and it makes him an interesting character. It doesn't make him a likable character. It makes him an interesting character, and it makes him more interesting than some characters that are just two dimensional because he's got a little more meat on the bones there. Well, one of the one of my favorite moments of the whole series actually involves Namor because in the third issue, where he finally wins Namor's respect because Namor's just an ass to him, you know, constantly through this, reminding him he's not the real Captain America that you know he's got huge shoes to fill, all this stuff, really giving him a hard time, but then he finally wins Namor's respect only to turn around and then announce that he's resigning from the all-winners squad. You've got everybody else reacting and then trying to talk him out of it and everything, and Namor just goes, ah, let him go, and just storms off pouting. And I, I love that, because that's, you know, that's just, that, that's, that speaks volumes for that character, you know, that he's, 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 he can pout. You know, here he is, royalty, and, you know, he's finally gotten chummy with this guy now he's leaving and he's like well fine then and he just storms it's great i love that I be that, that was way great. Oh, yeah exactly i like the way that panel is drawn too because everybody else nobody's in bright light but you can kind of make out every character where his name was just pure shadow yep yeah what did what did you guys think of mary as a character i'm not sure where they were going with her because she disappears at the end and we don't know what happened and that was the thing, like, I was wondering if, if maybe Kessel was laying groundwork for a sequel series? I was just going to say, yeah, that that's something that could possibly ex- be explored in the future if, if, you know, they ever go back to this. Plus, I can't help but wonder, sometimes when things like that happen in stories like this, you know, it, it, it'd be easy to look at it in the surface of it and go, well, that didn't go anywhere. But sometimes I wonder if maybe they don't go anywhere because the author... You know, in a, in an effort to be faithful to the source material, sometimes they can also be stymied because, you know, characters do things like that in comics. You know, where they just drop out and drop in, and you know, so if if he's being faithful to the characters and and writing within the confines of what's established for them, maybe that's part of her history. I I will freely confess that I don't know enough about. You know, Captain America comics from this era to to know, you know, what's the history with that character and and all, you know, if she even is a you know a, a character from history or whether she was invented for this series, I don't know. I I would guess that she's an actual historic uh, 
you know, character, but I, I don't know for sure. But yeah, she does. She just kind of disappears in this. I, I like though that it, it, it again it adds dimension to him through association. The fact that she's throwing herself at him, mm-hmm. but he wants the other girl, and I, I like that. I thought that that was that was a very interesting dynamic in this. Yeah, you know, I, I think about uh, the show The Sopranos, which I really liked when it was on. And there's an episode in that that was really highly regarded where they have this, uh, basically they, they have this guy that they, uh, they think they're going to kill him because he f***s around and they get angry at him and uh, they have to dispose of the body because he's highly thought of. And they bring him to the, uh, to like a woodsy area in New Jersey and meanwhile he's a trained soldier and he escapes somehow even though they thought he was dead. And... You go through the series and you wonder, are they going to ever have a callback to this guy because he did get away? And David Chase, the producer of the show, said, well, that's sometimes that's like real life. You know, that not everything in your life has closure. And I thought, right. well, that's dumb. Because, yeah, not everything in my real life has closure, but don't set up a real interesting storyline and then just say, I'm not going to finish it because not everything has closure. So I thought, right. it was a real, I thought it really was a cop-out on his part that he thought, you know, I can't come up with a storyline to end this that's that's satisfactory enough so i'm going to just say well duh, not everything has a real ending uh i can't imagine <laughs> that that's what kessel was thinking with mary i gotta think that you know because he, he he went through the the trouble to set up all the stuff with possible connections between her and the russians and where you know was she you know that you suspect that maybe at one point that she's the one who shot bucky and clearly she knows more about it than She's totally letting on. And then she disappears because clearly she's hiding something. I can't imagine that Kessel said, oh, no, that's it, because real life, we don't always have closure. I think he you know, he had a sto- some sort of story in mind for her, and perhaps he was hoping for a uh, sequel series, and maybe that speaks for how this was received, because we were talking about that before, because maybe this didn't sell enough to warrant a second run. But I got to think he was going to do something with that character sooner or later. Well, also, My, though, playing devil's advocate, there there was a moment where where was I'm trying to oh here it is it's in the middle of the of the last issue the fourth issue after she disappears. I I I wouldn't call this necessarily closure on the character, but. To, to your point of like what where was this going or what purpose did all that serve one purpose it does serve is that it continues to feed Skinner's attitude towards Mace because there, there's a great uh, it's the last panel of this page where he's talking about finding her Skinner is he, he wants to track her down and find her and Mace just laughs at that and he says that's a laugh you'll never find her and Skinner retorts, uh, then your name will never be cleared. So that's kind of, in my mind, that's at least one of the purposes that she served in, in the story is that by by doing what she did and, and disappearing under a cloud of suspicion, then she, by association, leaves him under a cloud of suspicion as well, at least with Skinner, because Skinner never accepts him as Captain America. He always feels like it, it wasn't done properly. They didn't vet him. He was kind of pressed into service, and he's always operated under this cloud of suspicion. 
That's one of the reasons why Skinner keeps him in a box the whole time and doesn't let him play on the global stage. I, I like that. It, it gives, you know, it gives some context and some explanation for, you know, it, here's Captain America, you know, in this era where the nation was, you know, yeah, maybe World War II was over, but we were not done having wars on the global stage so why wouldn't cap fight in korea why wouldn't cap fight in nam that sort of thing <laughs> that, that almost happens kind of you know the, the authors think what's that said, that almost happens he tries to send them to korea right right oh that yeah that's true too but it, it's giving that that you know it's, it's clearly the author thinking about these things and going okay well you know why why wouldn't they do that let's let's explore that and and i like that you know, but in a very subtle way where it's it's not immediately obvious that that's what they're doing. That uh, actually, it's it's funny that Scott said everything you just said because it kind of reached into my head and took took a, what I was thinking. Is I think <laughs> I, I think Mary um, as a character is kind of a kind of a tragic character because she's obviously got a thing for Jeff, and she's right. going to do all of these links to be with him. And, you know, there's that moment where she reveals she has all these superpowers, and he's just like, were you really kidnapped? Like, she got herself kidnapped and experimented on so that she could be his partner. That never really works out. She drops the whole, well, if you ever need a Bucky, and he reacts badly, so she storms out. And then they set up the whole Lavender thing, and... He goes to confront her, and I. What I love about the scene where he confronts her in her apartment is she's going on, she's talking, and then suddenly she realizes why he's there, and turns on a dime, and it's just like, wait, did you think I shot Bucky? And it was just like one of those great character moments where I'm like, wow, that that's that's hard to do in this type of medium, but Kessel manages to pull it off. But I I agree with Scott. I think her her ultimate purpose was to serve as the, you know, more fuel to the fact that Jeff Mace wasn't American enough to be Captain America in the era he was Captain America in. Right. You know, the, the, the whole cloud of suspicion of any communist ties, you know, I mean, they, they, it ruined lives. I mean, literally ruined lives in the 1950s, not just like in the entertainment business, but elsewhere where, you know, red under every bed and such. And I know different people have different opinions on it. Uh, and, you know, it's it's history, so, you know, that's all you can really do with it. Because uh, you can't go back in time and change it. But I think it was just like, she was, she served as that kind of final nail in the coffin. That, you know, he never felt like he was good enough to be Captain America because he didn't live up to Captain America's, you know, what Captain America could do. Meanwhile, you got this other dude named Skinner. And every time I read Skinner, I heard the superintendent from The Simpsons <laughs> yelling out, Skinner! Um, but, you know, you have this other guy who doesn't think that he's good enough to be Captain America because he didn't, he doesn't fit this dude's narrow-minded vision of what Captain America should be, you know, like constantly, like you, like you said, he's constantly bitching throughout the whole thing. We never vetted him. We never vetted him. Well, we he, just did it. He even hits him up with the, what was your name before your grandfather changed it? Yeah. And I thought that was a real nice touch in there. Because I think that was a big thing during the uh, the Red Scare in the 50s. 
you know, what, what was the history? When did you, you know, when did your family come over here? And you know, what was your name before you changed it? All of that stuff. But I, yeah, I, I, mean, I, the, I just think there was more to be said with Mary. I, I do think she served the purpose exactly as you guys say, but I don't think they were done with that character. I think, uh, I, 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 I think that Kessel had planned to explore her again down the road. It'd be interesting to get a hold of him and, and see, you know, because I, I don't know how this series was received. So see if he knows, you know, for oh, one, I'm sure he know, knows that. see if he would admit <laughs> whether or not, uh, you know, he had more plans, but also, you know, how was the series received? Does he still have any any plans to do anything more with this? Because this is a character I, w- I could definitely stand to see some more of. I, I really enjoyed this. Let me ask you though, real quick on the subject of Mary. Did she know about Casey? Because rereading this, as I have a couple of times now, I definitely see at least some hints here that maybe she knew. Oh, yeah. She you totally so? knew. Okay. Yeah, because it's kind of a cliche, but... For, for lack of a better term, a woman can tell sometimes. Uh, and, you know, it's just like, I, I wish I would have seen more with Casey, because I thought his death, you know, had impact, especially on Jeff. But it was just like, I would have liked to have seen more of that develop. Uh, but that's, you know, that's nitpicking on the grandest of scales, by the way. <laughs> that is finding something to complain about. But yeah, I, I think she definitely knew uh, that there was something different about Casey. I mean, she's in a she's in a room full of newsmen. So, you know, it's probably kind of a macho environment to begin with. So if there's one guy that kind of stands out a little bit, maybe she'd pick up on that. Because right. Jeff sure did it. Because Jeff couldn't pick up on the fact that Mary was in love with her. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know that he, he necessarily didn't pick up on it or he just he didn't address it. You know what I mean? I, I think, I think it made him uncomfortable. But the, and the, the reason I say that is that there was a moment where he and Skinner are talking. I think it's in issue four, if I'm not mistaken, although I'm not finding it here in a quick glance, but there was a moment where, Oh, here it is. It's, uh, after, uh, Fred Davis's captain America broke her heart. And he says, yeah, I guess, yeah, I know. I couldn't give her what she wanted. And I can see uh, her going to some place so that she never has to run into me again. But, and then that's when he says treason because of me. So he, he continues to defend her. He doesn't want to believe, you know, these, these nasty accusations about her. He still believes in her, but he's willing to admit that, there is there is some you know because of his hesitations in the in the way the speech is is drawn here i I read it as he doesn't want to believe it but he's also kind of grudgingly admitting that eh, it's at least possible because you know if she really you know is scorned you know feels scorned then eh, it's it's possible and he's he's kind of taking a bit of that blame onto himself and you you kind of have to feel for him because i mean you know if, if you're not into her you're not into her you know what i mean and and that's on her not on him but he's kind of internalizing some of that uh some of that guilt i think uh, over the situation 
again, it adds depth to his character. I really like that. So on the flip side, what did you guys think of Betsy Ross? And, you know, if you want to snicker at the name, go ahead. I, 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 no, not I, at all. I, I think it's cool. I, I liked I'd heard of the Golden Girl, but I had no idea who she was. So I thought that that was kind of cool to learn a little bit more about that character. Um, I was surprised at first that it was not him and Miss America. And then I remembered, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, she, she was with the, wizard. Up with the Wizard. Yeah, because she and the Wizard were the adopted parents of uh, Wanda and Pietro Maximoff. So I, I'd forgotten about that for the moment. But again, I thought that was neat because here's Mary in love with him. He's in love with Miss America. And that, never, you know, so it just doesn't work out properly until, you know, at the very end. Cue the Jay Giles uh, music. He does end up. What's that? I said, cue the Jay Giles music. So in love stinks. Jay Giles. You love her. Oh yeah. <laughs> she loves him. He loves somebody else. You just can't win. Right. And so and on and on until the day you die. <laughs> Thing they call now, love. It's gonna make you cry. <laughs> now I wanted to ask you guys on the next to last page because I don't really see any panels well maybe arguably one on the very last page but on the next to last page uh, second panel in particular but a lot of panels with Betsy in it here is she pregnant because that looks oh yes yeah. she's okay. pregnant at the end of the story now, so I don't remember anything about them having children do you know anything about this no but I, I think it's pretty obvious that she is pregnant there. I thought the character of Betsy wasn't really fleshed out that much. And I I attribute that more to space than anything else. I think they didn't really need to flesh her out too much. They just make her the kind of the perfect love interest, but they don't really give her a heck of a lot of personality, I didn't think. Well, I didn't understand why... She kept turning him down and turning him down, even to the point where when she tells him that she's being reassigned and then he basically says, OK, that's fine, whatever. Can I still see you? She turns him down again. She she actually the the word, the quote here is, uh, I don't know if it would be a good idea. What I read but then into later that, on when I'm he sorry. comes back into her life. He proposes, and obviously she accepts. So what changed? What I read into that was that she wasn't willing to get into a relationship with him until he was done. She needed to let him finish his job as Captain America. And more than that, she is basically spying on him. So there's a dishonest element to their relationship that until that is resolved, she can't... Uh, she can't be with him. I mean, and, and that's that actually speaks to her character. That she obviously, I mean, she obviously has feelings for him from the very beginning, because when she's introduced, there's a lot of flirty, flirty things going on between the two of them. I mean, and, and then when he punches Namor, she's like, "Well, let me look at your hand." You know, that to me, you know, was was one of those like love connection moments. But you know, the, I, I love the fact that he goes through this whole thing with Skinner. And Fred, and ultimately, you know, when when he realizes that he's just not going to be Captain America anymore, he just goes and finds the woman that he loves, and he does it in a really corny way, but in one of those corny but it's really cool kind of ways. That you know, she's sitting there at her desk eating her sandwich, drinking her eight or eight like like eight ounce Coke bottle, 
which is very period appropriate. And he's just like, I want to report a crime, a, a beautiful woman eating lunch alone. I mean, it's just, it's it's the line, but obviously for her, it's a line that worked. So you know, she she didn't turn him down this time because they could have an open and honest relationship where he doesn't have the specter well, of I, Captain America hanging over him. I like your I like your use of the word corny because it it is it's corny in that it, it works in that old movie kind of way you know that you could actually see this being a scene in an old movie. Mm-hmm. You know, where the guy gets the girl at the end by doing this this very sort of thing in that corny kind of 50s way. But I also like it, you know, described as corny in that sense of this This is kind of how I like my, my you know, the, the, the term that you often hear for, for guys like Captain America or Superman is, you know, the, the, that white bread. But I, this is how I like my heroes, you know what I mean? In, 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 in a lot of instances, especially when it comes to, to Captain America. So I like that. Corny, for me, works in this particular instance. And I, I just, I, I love that sequence. It's, it's very endearing, you know? I, I think that's a really great sequence. I, I kind of agree with you on that. I don't think corny necessarily should be equated with bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, absolutely. If, if corny is... You know, when you get to a book where everything is corny, yeah, okay, then that's that's going too far. But to have a character who's old-fashioned, I don't even know if corny is fair because it almost sounds like it's pejorative and it shouldn't be. There's there's nothing wrong I think with in being a lot old-fashioned. Of right, I, and I think in a lot of ways it has become kind of a negative term, but I still don't see it that way when it when it when it does apply to the situation. Corny in this particular situation i think is a great way to describe it because it's corny in that like yeah it's corny but it's that that works so yeah i really like that i have to tell you in a lot of in a lot of things that i do in my everyday life i'm kind of old-fashioned in the way i look at things my values how right. i expect people to behave and stuff and so if that's corny and that's bad then i'm okay with that yep me too me too absolutely no, what? I just want my characters to be rough and, and, and grim and gritty and you like, know, I don't, you I don't should like have these, just shot everybody at the end. I don't like these guys with the <laughs> ponytails and stuff. Oh, <laughs> oh shut up. <laughs> I have to throw a shot somewhere. Yeah, well, no, that was uh, well played, sir. Well played. Uh, yeah. I have nowhere to go with that. No. I, okay, cue, cue the Richard Gere music, the Richard Gere clip. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. <laughs> well, do we have any well, other? What do we think? Notes? On this, uh, I think I got all my notes out of the way. Uh, are, are we ready for grades overall? Yeah. Mike, you did the now synopsis, Mike, so you the... you're number one. There um, you go. I give all of the covers to this series an A. Uh, they're they're just beautiful pieces of art, in my opinion. Especially, I don't know that that last the the cover to the last issue where you have the the billboard of Captain America says duck and cover and he's walking towards the white picket house but there's the specter of a mushroom cloud in the background 
I mean, it's just it's just everything about that is like this is the perfect last cover to this. So all the covers get an A. Uh, the artwork overall gets a B because, like you, it could get a, I do agree it could get a little muddy. I mean, the, the the charcoal, the smudge charcoal thing on that one panel. You are absolutely right. Uh, but the writing in the story, I'm going to give an A, uh, just because I think from beginning to end, Kessel had a vision for how this was going to go. He never seemed to waver from that, and because of that, I fell in love with this character in a way that, like you guys, I want to see more. I want to see the return of the Patriot when something comes to town that you know, maybe deals with, I mean, that's the kind of, maybe deals with Mary, that's the kind of thing I want to see. So, I guess, overall, the whole thing gets an A-, minus. I guess that's how that would work out. You want to go, Scott, or me? Go ahead. Alright, uh, I'm in agreement with you on the covers. I think they're all A's. I think they're moody, they're dramatic, and they make me want to know what's inside. I think there's enough on them in an era where there's poster covers coming out all the time, these are poster type covers which actually tell a little bit of the story. I think they're well done, they're well drawn, and they're dramatic. And I just want to, you know, heap them full of praise because I think they're A's. The interior art, I've kind of made my complaints clear, but I don't know if I've made my, my, uh, the things that I do like about it clear, my praise. Because I do think that this points where it's very well laid out. I think the storytelling and the pacing are very well done. I think that the layouts are really sharp. So my criticism of it really is just in the final work on it. Uh, and some of the coloring, which could be just a little brighter at certain points. I think, you know, the nostalgic efforts that make the coloring a little muted at points are very good. But again... Some of the more superhero-y things, I think it would have done well to, for them to be a little cleaner, a little brighter. But that's my only real criticism of it. Otherwise, I think the artwork is really sharp. So I'm going to, I was going to go C+, but I think I'm more in line with you, Michael, and I think I'm going to go B-. Um, and I think the story is well-written. I think it's engaging. I think it does a really good job of going back and taking the uh, the existing canon and just make just fleshing it out and giving us more and as you said scott i think one of the most important things is you put it down and you wish there were more issues to it so i'm going to give it an a for the uh story so we got two a's and a b minus i'm going to give it a b plus overall excellent all right, well, um, I'm going to tackle covers first. Um, I love, love, love the covers to both the first and the last issue. The cover to the first issue is actually the cover of the trade paperback as well, mm -hmm. so if you ever see the trade paperback on this. I love this. This is phenomenal. I love the look of the Patriot. Uh, we don't get a whole lot of the Patriot in the story um, before he becomes Captain America, but you get enough to kind of whet your appetite for the character. But it's really more about his time as Cap. But I like that at least, you know, at, at, at least one of the issues, the Patriot proper got the cover. And, and this is just phenomenal. I really like his outfit. So I love the cover to, uh, to issue one. Uh, issue four is just beautiful. It's... Uh, Cap 
kind of strolling through this town. You've got a big uh, Captain America duck and cover, you know, the classic 50s, you know, atomic scare type of bulletin, uh, not bulletin board, what do you call it, a billboard in the background there and a big mushroom cloud. It's just, what a great cover. I really like that. I mean, this this is iconic on the level of that shot of the of the atomic cloud in, uh, in uh, the last Indiana Jones movie. I just think that's great. The covers for two and three are also very good. I just don't think they're quite at the same level as the covers of one and uh, four, but I do like them as well. Um, so overall on the covers, I'm going to go uh, a straight up A, although I, I think you know if I was to do them individually, uh, one and four, I think I would give an A+. Plus, but grading all four together, I will say A. The interior art's a tough one because... As I said, I wouldn't want every book I read to have this kind of art, but for this particular story, basically, it comes down to this for me. If they were going to continue this, if this was going to be a series and not just the four issues, would I want it to continue with this art? And for that, I would have to give a very definitive yes, because in the trade paperback, there is another story by Kessel of these characters. Um, it was from an all-winners special and the art in that is completely different. It's a very manga anime style that totally puts me off. Same author, same characters, probably a continuation or elaboration on the story that we're looking at here. And I didn't read it. And I didn't read it because of the art. And I haven't read it yet. I probably will eventually read it because, you know, I, I try to look past things like art when it comes to just a great story. And as I say, I want more of, of this from Carl Kessel. Well, this is more by Carl Kessel, so I will read it at some point. But yeah, just looking at the art in The Patriot and then looking at the art in that All Winners special, I mean, yeah, I mean, that that's the difference right there. So on that level, the art works for me. And uh, I think I'm going to honestly... I like most of everything in the art. I, I will agree with a lot of Paul's points about scratchiness and about being a little dark and things like that. But I, for me, it kind of lends to the mood of the book. So I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say honestly, a B plus. I see room for improvement. There's there were some some rough spots and all, so it can definitely be improved. But overall, I really really dug it. And then story. Story for me is a straight-up A+. I had no qualms. I had no quibbles. I had nothing I could nitpick. I didn't catch anything that was like, you know, took me out of the story or I thought was dumb or, or like some incredible leap in logic or anything like that. It just totally sucked me in and just really worked for me. Uh, and as we've said several times now, I just want more. So, yeah, it's a, it's a total A+. So... Uh, as an overall grade, uh, I, I think I'd just go right down the middle and say, A, I, I think it's a damn good story. And uh, I highly encourage anybody that, that wants to just, you know, what, whatever the hook is for you, whether it's, you know, more Captain America, whether it's, you know, superheroes in the 50s, whether it's, uh, you know, the invaders, wh whatever the hook is on this, check it out. I think you'll really enjoy it. I, I thought it was damn good fun. And uh, I really, really hope that at some point we get more. Uh, from this team with these characters because I really enjoyed it. Good book. Yeah, absolutely good. I'm glad. I'm glad that we got to discussing this one and we decided to dedicate an, an episode to it because definitely. I, I think this review could get a listener to say, you know what, I'm going to pick up this book and read it. And I love. When I that hope happens. so. 
Yeah, me too. I, I hope so. And I really, you know, if you do, if you're listening to this and you're like, man, that sounds like something I got to read and you and you seek it out and you read it, please let us know. Get, get in touch with us. Let us know what you thought of it, good or bad. If you, if you end up reading it, you're like, man, those guys are nuts. This sucked. I, I'd like to hear that too because I'd like to know what you didn't like about it. But I really enjoyed it. I, I give it my highest recommendation. I yeah, can't imagine it, that if you're not a sucker for for this type of comic book story that you won't enjoy it. Well, that's that's the thing too. I think if you heard this show, and it's the type of story that you won't like, you probably already know that because we've talked right. about it in depth enough <laughs> that you're probably going to say, "No, that's just not my kind of story." But if you've heard us talk about it and you're saying, "Oh, I'm intrigued by this," then I I will be surprised if you pick it up and you don't like it. And and not only is the trade paperback out there, but it is available on Comixology for a dollar ninety nine an issue, and it's part of Marvel Unlimited. So if you subscribe to that, it's in there. So oh, you don't okay, really nice. have to you don't have to go search it. You know you don't have to pay. You know it's part of your your Netflix service essentially. So I mean there, there's a variety of ways to get it, and I gotta say it looks great on paper. It looks really good on my iPad. Yeah. The artwork just pops out. I mean, it looks just fantastic. So I, I, I'm with these guys. I, I, I cannot recommend it enough for all the reasons they said. I mean, if you're just even a continuity guy or girl, you know, this this is definitely the type of thing you can sink your teeth into. This, as yeah. far as that goes, this fits in with the stuff that Roy Thomas did so much of. That, uh, oh damn, also I'm drawing a blank. Who's the uh, you know, Mark Wade did a lot of that. I'm, I'm missing out on one of the guys, though. Uh, or Buziak? Buziak. Busiek? Yes. Yeah. Well, Busiek. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, is that in the very on the first page of the first issue, Busiek, Wade, and a guy named Michael. Let me pull up the issue again, so I don't screw up this dude's name, because I will completely screw it up if I do. Uh, there's a there's a special thanks in there. To now it's my turn to stumble a little bit. Oh, I got it right here. Michael, is it Tiffenbacher? Tiffenbacher. He is. He has some comic book writing credits. He wrote a couple of those backup. Um, you know, whatever happened to in DC Comics Presents. Oh right. But, okay. Yeah. But he is one of the the leading guys in '60s comic book fandom. Uh, you know, he was, you know, he was one of the, the, the people that uh, participated heavily in it. And I have this really great book by a dude named Bill Shelley, uh, which I really recommend tracking down called The Golden Age of Comic Book Fandom, which goes yeah. into the history of of how comic book fandom became a thing in the 60s. And he he plays a part in that. So when I saw his name, I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I can see. Definitely. Oh, awesome. He was part of this in some way. So. But man, it's like a murderer's row of Kessel, Wade, and Busick. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> right there, who, you just got everything you who's, need. Who's the other dude, the Jeff Gelb? I don't recognize that name. I did not either, and unfortunately, because I'm a slack ass, I uh, <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I I decided not to look him up. I, can, I mean, it could be any. It might be his porn supplier or something. You don't know. I can well, say that no, I hate I, Michael Tiffenbacher, and I think I just want to yell out the name like Lex Luthor in Superman the movie. <laughs> Miss Tiffenbacher. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
guess is that it on this? Yeah, I'm I guess, thinking that's it on all this. All right. Well, I want to thank Michael for coming on with us because we don't get to oh, talk nearly you. as much as I'd like. Well, yeah, I will totally agree with that, and it's all my fault. I mean, my groupies just keep me so busy that. Uh, <laughs> which is just Speaking of which, how is Rachel? <laughs> Rachel is fantastic. <laughs> uh, Tell her we said hi. I, I will definitely do so. She's about to have a birthday, so she's uh, she knows she's getting a PS4, so that's not a big uh, s- secret on that. But uh, no, I, uh, you know, not only you know just having the connection to back to the bins. Uh, but just, you know, you guys are just amazing and, uh, I, I should make more time, uh, with it, but good Lord, real life is kicking me in the teeth right now. So it ain't easy. I know that, (laughs) but you, you know, you have an open invitation any week where you say, Hey, you know what? I got some free time. You let me know. And you're just on. Well, I would definitely like to be part of your, your Spider-Man, uh, thing. I'm sorry. We don't have a spot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> of course not well, I, was, I was trying to think of who to have on that one anyway so uh, you're it well one of the big reasons I wanted to have you Mike is I mean this this is the kind of stuff that you and I were doing over at Tales and I can't imagine oh, yeah. anybody that was listening to and enjoying our work on Tales wouldn't enjoy this book So. oh yeah definitely I mean if you if you if you look at this and go man that's not all that good but I love me some Roy Thomas, you know, All Star Squadron or Invaders. It's just like I don't know how you exist. Right. I really don't. <laughs> uh, because I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a controversial statement here, uh, and this is nothing against Roy Thomas on a personal level. I think Carl Kessel does in this story what Roy Thomas did better than what Roy, how Roy Thomas oh, did it. Hell yeah, yeah, and with a hell lot less words. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna. I'm going to say different eras, different writing styles based more on the era than anything else because I look at that what-if issue that set the groundwork for this and I think that's a great story. Mm -hmm. So I don't don't want to be kicking Roy Thomas while I'm propping up Cassie. I I did not mean that as an insult towards his abilities. Uh, I'm just saying that Carl Kessel is obviously superior in in every... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I, I no, think I mean, Roy no. Thomas set up, you know, he he kind of created the the model for how to do these things, and I, I think Kessel just ran with that, you yeah. know, and, and really delivered a solid story, kind of off that that groundwork, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I think they I think they both did what they did really really well. So I don't want to criticize one to praise the others. Right, what I'm saying. I think that they're you know again you know two. Two stories that are intertwined in their own way, and I, I, you know, I would put them on the list of stories that I think are excellent, both of them. How have you not gotten the nickname Peacemaker Paul by this point? That's what I don't understand. Uh, you, you got me there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the job at the UN fell through, so. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, 
which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. So, oh, so what is this? Back to the bins? Where are we? We are back to the bins. We are back to the bins. Bum, 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 bum. No, that doesn't work, does it? Not really. Wait, we are binsers. Boom, 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 boom. Like we are farmers. I, I did figure that one out. <laughs> well, I want to make sure that you, you know, you knew what I was talking about. But the bump, the bump, 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 bump doesn't go well, does it? Goes wonderfully. Yeah. Well, then that's it. That's our new theme. Yeah. You just, you know, we are binsers. Boom, 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 boom. That will be a uh, a bumper. <laughs> No, really? It's all I am is a big giant bumper for you. Bumper boy. <laughs>